Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And buckle your seatbelts, because here comes a Blitz Kiss. I was going to make a Blitz, blitz Kiss joke too. <laughs> We've already confused everyone. It really captured my imagination when she mentioned that. I was like, wow, like, I've never what, heard that before. What, what is she doing? Like, what, How good is that kiss that it's a Blitz Kiss? I mean, Pamela does not undersell her value. She's dropping bombs. Mmm, mm, smoochy bombs. Mmm, mm, smoochy bombs. That's the name of this episode. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Spy Hards and the Smoochy Bombs. That sounds, <laughs> that's, that's, that's like the Goldfoot sequel we never got there. The, the uh, threequel. Yeah, exactly. I, I've been in the threequel. Anyway. Um, With Dr. Goldfoot? Good lord. Yes! <laughs> it, was, it was all about those gold slippers he wore. <laughs> That's all he wore. Oh. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. Okay, Cam, come on, put us out of our misery. What are we talking about this week? That was a very Cary Grant delivery there. We are talking about 1942's Spy Ship. Sorry, I've never heard of it. That is, I think, an honest answer and one that many people listening to this episode can reiterate as well. Um, if you go to Letterboxd, this movie has, I believe, two reviews excluding mine and uh i don't know like maybe 10 views period it is not a well-known movie this is very much a b movie bit of a propaganda film from the war era um but you know what we want to tackle all the spy films and sometimes movies like this are the most interesting to talk about uh they can definitely take us by surprise uh i don't know about this one we'll get into that but for those of you who haven't seen spy ship which is a fun title to say, and that's probably everyone listening. Here is your letterbox synopsis. Spy ship. CG men smash saboteurs. Yeah. They're saying that a bunch of times really fast. That's the toughie right there. They used to throw around the term G-men constantly. Can you imagine dropping that one on like a 20-year-old now? They'd have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even know what they're talking about. It's like government agents. Oh, I see. Government men. That makes sense. Yeah. CG men smash saboteurs. A radio reporter begins to suspect that a commentator at his station may be using her position to broadcast shipping information to enemy spies. With the help of the girl's sister, he sets out to expose the spy and her Nazi gang. Yep, that is very accurate. This is a pretty classic fifth column uh, espionage story set in the U.S. where there I, are. I have a question. I have a question. I need to. I need to interrupt you. Yeah, it's the fifth column, right? Yeah. What are the other four? <laughs> I was scared you were going to ask me that because I don't have a clue. I've only learned that like the fifth columnists were these like uh, you know Nazi spies operating in America during wartime. That's about all I know. I it, let us know, folks. If you know what the one, two, three, and four like columns were. I'd be genuinely interested because I'm not going to Google it. I'd rather just you know, spitball about what it might be. Sure. Like, what's the third one? I don't want the fourth. Like, what's in the middle? Like, is it like leading up to being a Nazi? Like, what's what's on the road? I have absolutely no idea. I I don't because like, wouldn't it only take four columns to hold something up? Yeah. What's the fifth one doing? It's kind of like an awkward one, right? It's like a table where you've suddenly got like a post right 
up the middle too. Yeah, it's well, it's, it's like the the guys like hanging on in the group, like two couples going out for dinner. And there's like a fifth one. And I go, hey guys, I'm over here. And it's like we don't need you. You're not wanted here. Are you talking about me? It's very much you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's you. Yeah. Hi guys. Cam is our fifth. Yeah. Hello. Cam is our fifth column. Apparently, although he he's not, folks. Don't worry. Would someone like some pretzel dip appetizer? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I used to get my retainer. <laughs> but yeah, to be fair, much as no one has ever seen or heard of this film since the 1940s, it is available on YouTube, and there is a link in the show notes below right now if you want to pause this and go and watch it and come back. It's only 60 minutes. That's true, which is a huge plus in its favor, and it is a fast-paced 60 minutes. Boy, does it not stop. It is <laughs> it is a rip-roaring ride all the way through, uh, for better or for worse. You will be blown away how much can happen in 13 minutes of screen time. <laughs> <laughs> you just think, like, what are screenwriters doing these days? Because they do so much in such a little amount of time. There was a point where I had like smoke coming off my pen taking notes. <laughs> I filled up like a quarter of my space of notes and I had to check the timer and it was 13 minutes. I was like, oh my God, so much has happened. <laughs> I have an A5 sheet of paper that's lined, okay, for my notes. By about the 20 minute mark, I was two thirds full. I was like, oh, oh boy, I'm running out of room here. And so, it, it, I mean, like, it's like more payoffs later. So you actually have, find you have less notes. And I just about made it through. But there is a bit of a spillover onto a second page, unfortunately, which I can't be said for, like, Spectre. No. My concern was when I saw the movie was like an hour and two minutes or something like that, that, oh, this could be rather thin. Um, I may wind up with, like you know, a quarter of a page of notes and we may have to stretch this episode a bit or find some outside information to bring into the episode. But uh, no, I think we have more than enough to talk about with Spy Ship. No, I think so too. And we will get to that in a minute. And we'll get to the how it was made in a second. Because usually at this point, I'd ask the question, do you have any previous connections to this film? Of course, I don't. I'm assuming, Cam, you're the same. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Maybe we could just um, give people a little bit of a catch-up, though, because we have talked about World War II propaganda films before. Mm -hmm. We talked about Tonight We Raid Calais, which we really enjoyed. I think that one was probably kind of the heights of artistry you see in these types of movies. Mm -hmm. um, there was also... House on 92nd Street. How, that's a great one. Yeah, House on 92nd Street. And the was Bogart it? one. Well, I mean, it's a great call that you bring that up, but I guess it's more of an... It's more of an important movie just in terms of kind of like changing the way that movies could be made because it was that kind of docudrama form. It's not the most gripping of movies, but we also had All Through the Night, uh, the Humphrey Bogart film that was kind of the uh, what happens when uh, gangsters go up against, you know, Nazi spies. That one was actually really fun as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so like the propaganda films of this era can kind of like run the gamut where like some of them have genuine artistry to them or i think also of ministry of fear which had pretty mm -hmm. strong propaganda elements as well but like told a pretty involving spy story and then some of them are like really slapdash simplistic which was uh we haven't really i think had one quite like that yet um who knows maybe it's spy ship we'll get to that in a few minutes but there's going to be more i know in the future and some i've seen in the past that do apply for future coverage that are like incredibly creaky like an hour and five minutes feels stretched and it's really just 
created with the sole purpose of, you know, selling war bonds and getting Americans involved in the war effort. Wasn't there one that we watched definitely in the last year, I would say, that actually had a war bonds advertisement on it? Was that Tonight We Raid Calais? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I, I just, I remember that being like a very like in-your-face choice. Yes, uh, I do remember what you're talking about. And when I think of like in-your-face, I think more Big Jim McLean, the John Wayne film, but that was uh, well past World War II. Which does have a connection to this film. Okay, uh, you'll have to explain that to me because I'm blanking as you say that. Okay, I'll save it to when we get to that bit of the plot. But let's let's hop aboard. Yeah, we, we, we've done a lot of dealings with locomotives so far this year. I thought I would go something more naval. Sure. With this film. Yeah. You know, I don't take to the sea very well myself, though. I'm not I'm not a big boater. I'm not either. Um, I have gotten quite seasick before, and that experience was so awful that it has totally scared me away from doing things like cruises or anything like that. Mm. Just not interested. I, I'm not so much that. I'm just not the strongest of swimmers. Mm, okay. So I just know, like, if it went down like the Titanic, I'm basically up the creek. Sure, sure. I mean, I'd probably be in the same boat if it's the Titanic, and I'm in the middle of the ocean, and it's freezing. <laughs> the same boat, huh? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on then. Let's talk about it. Spy ship, how do we get here? Okay, so this was based on a book by George Dyer. He was an American writer, and in 1932, he published a novel called The Five Fragments. And when I saw that title, I was like, five fragments? Because <laughs> I'm racking my brain to think of this movie. What exactly were the five fragments? But this was actually like a very twisty crime story told by five narrators. A cop, a young reporter, a coast guardsman, a colorful gangster, and a customs agent. And it involved dope smuggling and bootlegging and a wild heiress named Arlene and her sister. And the way the story was told, it was basically five points of view and then ultimately summing up in terms of what the grand conspiracy of this story was. Now, there were no spy elements in The Five Fragments. It was more of a crime story. I, I'm more just taken aback by the idea of a colorful gangster. Well. Like, do they have, like, a really nice coat? Who was the Joker? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he is a colorful gangster, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, uh, the, the Prince of Crime. The 1989 Batman version, you know, when he's like, before he's the Joker. Right. Mm. Yeah, okay. I can buy that. Yeah. Uh, and so this book was actually quite popular, or at least got attention very quickly, because it was adapted into a 1934 film called Fog Over Frisco, starring Betty Davis. This was an early star vehicle for her, and directed by William Dietrich, who had helmed uh, a 1926 adaptation of Faust, which he was probably best known for, but kind of a journeyman director largely and fog over frisco was um pretty well received and has a lot more letterboxed reviews than uh spy ship does <laughs> I, I i was just gonna add fog over frisco sounds like my made-up title for the sequel to sleeping car to trieste which was uh pick uh what was it P pedalo to piccadilly that's right yes yes what do you think is a better title coming out of the the five fragments is not a great title but which is better, Spy Ship or Fog Over Frisco? I think Fog Over Frisco is a bit more uh, provocative. It's more atmospheric. Like, I, I really get a sense of what they're trying to sell there. Uh, and that film... Fog. Exactly, lots of fog. And that yeah. film adaptation uh, was, again, a crime story. It was not spy-themed. So we won't be covering it. Because I did have a moment of panic where I thought, 
Oh my god, we should have been doing Fog Over Frisco before we did Spy Ship. But nope, we're in the clear. We're just retelling the story of Trieste here, because that exact same thing happened with Sleeping <laughs> Cards of Trieste. But there was a film originally made from the story that was from a book that wasn't a spy movie, and then it was made into a spy movie afterwards, and this is happening again. We are inside a dream. It's true. And um, anyone who wants to watch Fog Over Frisco, it is available free online on Archive and I think maybe YouTube. I'll post a link in the show notes for those who are so hyped up on Spy Ship they want more of the same. Look at all the homework we have to give you. Isn't it great, folks? You can't just listen to a podcast. You have to listen to stuff first. (laughs) Exactly. And so in the early 1940s, Warner Brothers decided to remake that story and make it more spy-themed. And obviously, the war has started, and so there's more of an interest in creating a propaganda film. And I think just the framework of Fog Over Frisco slash The Five Fragments probably made a lot of sense. I mean, this to me feels like a pretty cohesive spy story, so it shows Mm -hmm. that it didn't take that much work to kind of alter it. What was the sort of plot revolving around in the original Fog Over Frisco? What what were they chasing? It was uh, drug smuggling and bootlegging. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, I suppose you just change it to secrets. Yeah, shipping shipping secrets. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it's like a Nazi plot versus like a it's like a Nazi plot versus like a gangster plot. I think uh yeah. it would be a pretty easy change. Um and so they hired Panama-born writer and later producer Robert E. Kent to write the screenplay for this film. He entered into the film industry in 1937 with the crime thriller Paid to Dance. I was really hoping for a funnier synopsis as to what Paid to Dance was about, but it really is just kind of a uh, pretty, you know, hard-boiled gangster story. So, too bad. Is it more like like when they shoot the floor and say, like, dance kid, that sort of thing? Is that is that where the dance comes from? No, it's about um, some taxi dancers who have been murdered and they need to solve the crime. Now, in case you don't know, taxi dancers were women who worked in dance halls and you would pay them to dance. You sound like quite the expert on this count. I'm your private dancer. Dancer for money. Do what you want me to do. <laughs> no comment. No comment there. I want a blitz kiss is what I want. Exactly. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's that's my specialty. That mm. and, um, yeah, cutting a jive. Uh, so Robert E. Kent, if you go through his filmography, this man just cranked out pulp films. And I love it. I was going through like the titles. Juvenile Court. Flying G-Men. Charlie Chan in Reno, calling all husbands. And this was his follow-up to I Was Framed. I can see all of those posters in my head right now. Yeah, it's just like sensationalistic taglines. You'll never believe your eyes. Exactly, like yeah, a movie that everyone will be talking about. Drop what you're doing and head to your local theater. That sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is what cinema was at this point, wasn't it? Like, apart from like more artistic films, it was... Just get him in. Get him through the doors. Yeah, and like flashy B-movies that would play before your main feature that could take a little bit of a walk on the wild side sometimes. Sure. Like you and the taxi women, yeah? Exactly, yes. No, I am one of the taxi women. I joined oh, them. I'm sorry. What, what, is, what makes him a taxi woman, though? That's a bit I don't get. Like, where's that title come from? I don't know. I'd have to Google that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I should know my industry better. (laughs) Yeah, you know, buddy, you know. But Robert E. Kent was so busy. This guy in 1942 alone had five movies produced off his screenplays. I can't imagine that. 
That's that's a busy man. His credits that came later, he did like Dick Tracy versus Q-Ball and Dick Tracy meets Gruesome, both of which I've seen. He also mm. later on wrote a Vincent Price film called Twice Told Tales in 1966 and ended his career with the 1970 film The Christine Jorgensen Story. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of like a respectable end to a career. What is this about? And so I looked it up. And it was about a 1950s sex change operation in Denmark. And reading up on the film does not sound like the most sensitive tackling of such a topic. Oh. Oh. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Probably probably don't recommend you all look that one up, folks, unless uh, you want to be annoyed. I think you're safe skipping that one. Check out his Dick Tracy movies. They're a lot more fun and a lot less problematic. If it's anything like the Dick Tracy film I watched that you told me to, I, I'm sure they're great. Sure. And... Uh, so this movie and uh, story drew a lot of its inspiration from a notorious real-world aviator named Laura Ingalls. Now, Laura Ingalls, not Wilder, uh, the author of Little House on the Prairie, just Laura Ingalls, she was a record-setting acrobatic flyer who won a 1934 Harmon Trophy for aviation for being the first American woman to fly over the Andes. She uh, was the first solo flight around South America in a land plane, the first flight by a woman from North America to South America, and she set a woman's uh, distance record of 17,000 miles in the air. L- land plane sounds counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, I guess, what is a land plane? Is that like a crop duster? It's like a sky submarine. Yeah. Like, what, what, does it, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm not an aviator. No. Or, you, you can't do planes or boats. You're, you're two-thirds of uh, planes, trains, and automobiles <laughs> out. I just walk everywhere. <laughs> uh, that is true. You do. You do. So, yes, Laura Ingalls was like very celebrated for her aviation. Uh, she was also, in December 1941, sentenced to 20 months in prison for failing to register as a paid Nazi agent. And she was known for giving speeches at America First committee gatherings, deriding America's lousy democracy and giving Nazi salutes. And she was a huge uh, celebrator of Hitler's reign. Do people often register? I would have to look into the technicalities of law in 1940. I just wonder if that's a very technical term for the charge. But uh, yeah, I don't think people generally would register as a Nazi agent. Yeah, there was a there's definitely a film that we watched at some point over the years where they made a joke about that. Where like someone said, "Oh, I have to register as an enemy agent," and then people were like, "Do people often do that?" And they're like, "Oh no, I guess not." And then they kind of laughed themselves. Bridge of Spies. Is it like Black Book? Is it Bridge of Spies? Right. Okay. Yeah, Mark Rylance has that line. Yes, it's actually really yes, a good it line. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just stole someone else's joke. That's uh, classic me. Yeah. So that was kind of the case for uh, Laura Ingalls were <laughs> charged for not registering but yeah why would she register um and uh yeah like it was crazy like the trial um it came out that uh, the US Gestapo had infiltrated America First this committee that she was uh giving speeches for and she was sent to prison as i said for 20 months prison did not alter her views at all and she really continued to double down she had legal problems going forward and was later denied presidential pardon and died in 1967. Well, this is maybe, I was going to bring it up later, but it kind of fits in here, that there this whole concept that there was a movement of anti-war propaganda. Yeah. 
in the US during the beginning of where we were fighting. I say we, I wasn't, my family were, in World War Two. The idea that as a country, they were like some of portions was like, no, 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 this is not our fight. We're staying the heck out of this. I didn't realize that was a thing. I, th- I thought it was more like apathy for a while. Sure. And then Pearl Harbor happens and it sort of changes the, the course of the war. I didn't realize there was an actual push to stay away. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, this woman would, would have been giving speeches before Pearl Harbor. Mm. Um, so I think Pearl Harbor played a significant role in changing the tide in terms of Americans feeling that it was worth going to battle over. Yeah. 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 Well, they were under, they were attacked at that point. So they, they had to obviously join the war and Japan was sided with the Nazis. Yeah. So that was how it will happen. Yeah. But it was interesting when I was watching this movie and you had the character based on her giving these speeches, I was like making notes like, boy, this woman's really on the wrong side of history here. And I didn't really realize that this was based at the time on a real person who was doing such a thing. And But I guess it makes sense. You know, you look at any real issue, um, there's always people opposing it, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, whichever way history falls, there was people on the opposite side opposing it. So I guess this makes as much sense as anything. Sure. Logically, thinking about it, yeah, sure. It's just always, you hear the stories about, oh, how we were bailed out by the Americans, we being as a country and the allied forces, as it were. Um, but it's interesting that like a good portion of the country had no interest in helping whatsoever. Like, oh, yes, that's, that's, a, that's a strange thing. But then to be fair, the lead character you were just referring to, uh, Pam Mitchell, played by Irene Manning, she utters the line, I don't care about England very early on. And at that point, I was like, I, I don't like this woman. I don't, <laughs> I don't care what happens. Whereas I was like, her and I, we're on the same page over this. Oh. <laughs> we disagree on a lot, but we, we agree on that one. <laughs> she's, she's onto something there. <laughs> Scott has taught me a lot, and uh, if anything, he he's aligned me with her views a little more. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the film was directed by B. Reeves Eason, who started acting in shorts in 1913 and got behind the camera a couple years later in 1915, and just so many shorts, and eventually so many westerns, like over a hundred westerns. And he did do the 1932 version of Last of the Mohicans, which has some name value because it was remade by Michael Mann many years later and is a much-loved film. But this guy, when we get towards World War II, just started cranking out war movies as well. Uh, A lot of them, like, kind of cheapies with titles that are very sensationalistic. Um, But, however, this was his follow-up to actually a crime drama called Murder in the Big House, starring Van Johnson. And... This guy just worked consistently through his whole career. His final theatrical film was in 1949 with the Western called Rimfire. Now, when I talk about this guy's filmography, he doesn't have a lot of titles that I can really say out loud other than Last of the Mohicans that anyone is going to kind of perk their ears for. But he also, when he wasn't acting as a director, he did do work as a second unit or assistant director. And he has some pretty impressive credentials. He worked on the original Ben-Hur, Tale of the Christ, from 1925. He ran 42 cameras to capture the chariot race Mm -hmm. in that film. And I've seen that film actually on the big screen. It looks incredible. People that are only familiar with the Charlton Heston version would do well to actually check out that silent one. It's really visually incredible and has some sequences that are even more hard-edged than some of the stuff in the 50s version. 
Um, he also was an assistant director on 1931's Cimarron, which was a Western and won Best Picture that year. He also worked on The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn, and filmed the Burning of Atlanta sequence in Gone with the Wind. So while his, you know, number one director career didn't really yield a lot of classics, his second unit or assistant work was actually pretty high pedigree. And you missed a very important bit of information as well there, Cam. What's that? His nickname <laughs> was Breezy Eason. I know. Isn't that great? I mean, as far as it goes, I mean, his name, folks, I'll reiterate, is B. Reeves Eason. And he went, he was credited for a long time as Breezy Eason. That's, uh, that's a pretty memorable title. Oh, Breezy's directing us today. Hey, Breezy. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Well, the fact that he cranked out so many B-Westerns, like just constantly, like many films per year, he had to be easygoing. He had to be easy breezy. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in terms of the budget or box office for Spy Ship, I don't have a clue. There are literally like no production notes on this movie whatsoever. If you look up, you know, Wikipedia or Turner Classic Movies or AFI or any of these various sites, there's nothing whatsoever on Spy Ship. All I had was the illusion that it was based on a real person, which I then was able to go down a rabbit hole. So I can't tell you anything about what this movie made. I'm sure it did just dandy. So I can tell you, though, the top three for 1942. Number one was Bambi. Number two was Mrs. Miniver, which won Best Picture. And number three was Yankee Doodle Dandy, which was the very patriotic musical starring James Cagney. Okay. Well, I've seen one of those three. I have seen all of them. Uh, and actually, all three are good. I would recommend all three. You're a regular Yankee Doodle Candy. <laughs> That's right, I am. That's my new nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, anything else for us, Cam? No, that about sums up Spy Ship. I'd love to have uh, you know, a few more mentions of awards and things like that, but there is nothing to speak of. Well, let's uh, let the ship depart and let's talk about Spy Ship. For a one-hour film... Mm. Uh, Foghorn <laughs> Leghorn over here. That's right. For a 60-minute film, it sure packs a punch. There's a lot to talk about. I mean... I think I want to hear you go first, I can. Okay, so Spy Ship is an interesting film in that it is stripped to the bone. Uh, it operates purely just in terms of the necessities as to what makes up a film. Mm-hmm. It has very basic characters, incredibly mm-hmm. basic. It has its plotting that is very punchy. It's like bullet points. You are going through each point, connecting the dots to get to basically a big sensational climax. I think it is a movie that um, in some ways is dated beyond all belief and probably borderline unwatchable to a lot of people nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think like spy fans would find interesting elements in it. This is a movie where I can't even say really if it's good or bad. There's a lot of interesting things I want to talk about with this movie, like a lot of crazy elements that I think are going to Definitely uh, inspires a fun conversation. But, like, you kind of get what you sign up for. If you sign up for a pulpy uh, propaganda spy film called Spy Ship, you get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it does it without a lot of mess. It 
follows kind of the template you would get in a lot of kind of like hard-boiled crime stories. Um, you know, there's like, if you were to swap out the uh, the Nazi conspirators in this film for gangsters, it would be like a, a basic hard-boiled crime story where it would end with the cops gunning down the gangsters. Crime doesn't pay the end. Mm-hmm. It follows that kind of thinking. Um, but I do think like, as a spy fan, there's interesting elements here. It has some real like, punchy dialogue and punchy just like plot turns Mm -hmm. so like it kept me very involved but when i was saying that like some of the earlier propaganda films we've looked at had a little more artistry going on for them that is not an issue with this one it is pretty much threadbare of artistry you say that as if it's necessarily a bad thing i think this it delivers on its promise i think in terms of like a 60 minute film i've not seen many I can't ask for much more. <laughs> like there is no time for exposition. There is no time for you know character development. They've literally got to get to all of these set pieces in sixty minutes, or the film will explode. <laughs> so they've got to do it. Like, there, there's no time to talk about it. I think this movie is maybe like seven minutes shorter than Bambi. It's just interesting that this year people were really checking out these very short movies. I I, I totally get it, and it's funny. That the director's nickname was Breezy Eason. Mm-hmm. Because the second word in my synopsis is this. A breezy frolic into World War II propaganda. There are no wasted moments throughout the film. And it's stacked with memorable moments. And I actually wanted more. Yeah. Like I, I was left wanting more. How many films, especially now, can you say, you know, don't outstay their welcome? Mm-hmm. Like the flash, it's like three hours or something like that. Like, it it didn't go by in a flash. This went by in a flash. I was, I was captivated by the screen. I mean, of course, there are very bizarre and problematic moments in this film, mm-hmm. no doubt about it. But I would take bizarre and problematic and interesting over dull any day of the week. This at least gives you something to think about at the end, and it you know. It's got twists. It's got twists that you don't see coming. I mean, I, I mean, you learn pretty quickly that the the main focus at the beginning of the film is actually the villain. Mm-hmm. But the way it's, I just, I was not expecting it to. I was thinking, oh, it's going to be a movie, sixty minutes. It's going to be just sort of dum da dum da dum, and we're at the end. I couldn't take my eyes off this thing. Like it barrels through, and there are basically plot twists every like I don't know. 12 minutes or something like that like just when you yeah. think you know kind of the the setup that's going to carry you to the end of the movie it changes directions again mm-hmm. and like it sets up this character of pam mitchell the aviator in question um of this film who's giving these speeches where she's sending you know anti-american involvement in world war ii and kind of pro-nazi messages and you're kind of like questioning a lot of the time who this character is. Like, what is her agenda? Is she just completely like a little out to lunch? Because you have her father saying how ashamed he is of her messaging. Um, you have the sister, you know, talking to her reporter boyfriend about what the sister may be doing because there's ships being um, sunk 
that are carrying supplies. There's like a, mm-hmm. a conspiracy going on. And I was wondering a lot of it, if this character was just ill-informed and was going to have kind of a come to Jesus kind of moment and was going to have a turn kind of at the end of like, I realize what America needs to do. Kind of like the inspirational turn for the character. Mm-hmm. And uh, note, the movie would constantly undercut my expectations. So it's funny how like, it kind of gives you a very like basic B movie with constant twists to it, but it doesn't necessarily do it in a way where you're thinking it's predictable. No, it, it's entirely unpredictable. And you mentioned that sort of the idea of not understanding why the Pam Mitchell character, that you're what you think is your protagonist for at least the first sort of 10 minutes. It reminded me a lot of a film we've referenced earlier, which is Tonight We Raid Calais. Mm-hmm. where the female lead of that film is, for the first part, sort of a bit of an antagonist, is working against who you think is the, 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 the hero. She later becomes the hero of the story. And she is working on the side of the Nazis as just sort of a, just trying to live her life. She's a sympathizer. She's just doing what she has to do to get by. And for a little while, I thought Pam Mitchell was doing the exact same thing. Yes, she was feeding information to the Nazis, but it was just more of a, hey, it's a job. I'm 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 not siding with them. I'm just I don't think we should be at war. And they've asked me some information, and here it is. But you learn, you know, in the first sort of fifteen minutes of that point, she meets up with a group of fifth columnists, and you're like, oh no, she is entirely complicit, if not mostly running this thing, because she seems to be the center of attention anytime she walks in the room. And I just really appreciate that that twist on it, like she was just evil the entire time, but being played as if you know she's a socialite, she's famous. Everyone respects her. It's it's a cool little twist. And she's more of an opportunist, which is interesting because mm-hmm. she actually at a certain point says the Fuhrer is crazy uh, to yep. the fifth columnist um, and is really just in it for the money because she's saying, mm-hmm. you know, she wants 5000 for the job for basically sending coded messages in her speeches, but then says next time it's going to be like double or something like that. Like it's someone who just has no moral code whatsoever and is entirely out for themselves which is sort of an interesting like fly in the ointment character to have in very clear-sided um, kind of American interests versus fifth column interests. To have this character in the center that's kind of exploiting things to her own ends. And also just very interesting to have that be played by a woman. Well, you mentioned Tonight We Raid Calais. And that movie, the female character, is probably the most dynamic character in the film. And mm-hmm. I would say that's the case for this movie as well. The male characters are actually pretty static. Mm-hmm. This one, you know, it's a reporter. He doesn't really go on that much of a journey. He's there to connect the dots, but his actual character journey is pretty basic stuff. Uh, Craig Stevens, who plays Ward Prescott. I mean, I, I wrote down, he's quite the matinee idol. He's a handsome chap. He seems to be quite charismatic when he's on screen. But yeah, he's not really proactive in the film for the most part he's sort of reactive to what other people are doing and he is a, a detective so i guess it kind of makes sense but yeah i it's interesting that like because i wrote down one of it's actually one of my criticisms so maybe we'll just while we're talking about it i'll bring it up now yeah. is that there's a an inversion of time spent usually with films i've in the past i found you spend more time with the protagonist and a little less time with the antagonist because well you've they're your hero. You want to spend time with the hero. But this film seems pretty, at least for the first 35, 40 minutes, pretty hell-bent on wanting to spend time with what turns out to be you know, your antagonist, Pam Mitchell. Which, and, and as you say, she's probably the more charismatic of the two. But it's interesting that you don't really get to learn anything about 
what motivates uh, Ward, Craig Stevens, Ward Prescott at all. But you, you learn a little bit about Pam's motivations. You do, and I think she's actually the most interesting character in the movie. And that's actually a real like for me, is that I never knew where she was coming from. Would they introduce a twist that, like, she reunites with the character uh, Martin Oster, who is a friend of her father's, who is also a fifth columnist. And we find out that, like, she's in love with him, but he wants to leave her for someone else he's met. It suddenly adds, like, psychological layers to this character. Like, this is not a three-hour character study. This is a fast-paced 60-minute movie. So there's only so much time for character development. But I could understand kind of the journey of Pam Mitchell just from what the movie was telling me. It was punchy, but it left me with something when the movie was over. I didn't sit there like, you and I recently talked about Heart of Stone, which is mm -hmm. like an hour longer than this movie. And I walked away with no real clear sense of the Gal Gadot character and what she was going through through that movie. Whereas like, I mean, Pam Mitchell has how much screen time do you think? Maybe like 20 minutes? Yeah. I mean, she is, uh, spoiler alert, killed by the, I mean, like, the last 15 minutes. Yeah. And yet I had a really clear understanding as to what her motivations were, what her journey was, and ultimately how she impacted the characters around her. And amazingly, she's killed off screen. Yes. Like the person you're spending all your time with is then just off off screen. Uh-huh. I have a whole little section I want to do about um, the um, Ward Prescott reporter character and his crime investigation uh, skills we'll get to that later though <laughs> okay 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 I, I mean i'm gonna transfer us over to likes in a second but i, I something bugged me is something you said a second ago and i want to confirm this okay do you do you say columnists or columnists columnists are you supposed to say the n can confirm that you do pronounce the n fifth columnists wow so i'm wrong it's columnists yeah yeah. This is, is riveting podcast, folks. Strap <laughs> in for pronunciation <laughs> techniques. Maybe the N is silent when you say it. I don't know. <laughs> I uh, uh, Well, let us know, folks. Is it columnists or columnists? And if you haven't unsubscribed already, we want to hear from you. Yeah. But let's hop to it, Cam. Let's get to the likes. Things that we like. I'll go first if you don't mind. It's the pace. It's, I mean, first of all, I'm in for any film that's 60 minutes. Sure. I'm sold. Like it, it, it it's already getting an A plus anyway. Like that's great. But it, it there is no fat on this meat. It is lean as it comes. You will not I mean it's not and also it's not as if you can't look away for a second. It's not just constant exposition. There are protracted shootout scenes, a car chase that's actually surprisingly well done for the nineteen forties. And another one of my likes is sort of great action set pieces, which I'll get to in a minute. But just the pace of it, it, it gives you all the information you need, and that's it. And it moves on. Economy and lean. I I just love that in a film because I'm, you know, we're in a day and age now where films are very much over long, and I'm probably making my entire point over long as well. So I'll end it there. But it's also like trading in character types that an audience can instantly understand in that era. Like the yep. reporter character. Reporters were often depicted as having a lot of power in this era versus now. <laughs> yeah. They, they, he busts down the door with a police squad and starts going over the evidence in front of them. I'm thinking, there's, a, there's pretty much a chain of evidence here. I'm fairly sure. Why is he touching everything? 
Okay, sidebar time. I want to talk about this reporter having so much power. Okay. It's time okay. to go into um, <laughs> Crime Corner uh, with the character of Ward Prescott here. Do we need like a theme music for this or something? Dun, dun, dun. That's like the... Great. That's more of uh, the people's court, but nonetheless. Um, <laughs> sure. Okay, we're here. It's the, it's the Prescott's court. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So like, okay, he finds the body of Pam Mitchell in the back of a car. Of course, he's a reporter, so he has no power whatsoever. Well, he does, because he's a reporter in those days. Apparently, you had power. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So, he, he, he finds the body. Sure, that's, that's not out of the blue. That's, that's, that's fine. Oh, is it, Scott? When he sees legs sticking out from under, like, a coat and says, she's been strangled. <laughs> 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 he doesn't even pull the coat back. He just assumes it's her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. So no visual identity on the body, and uh, he's figured out the the mode of death without actually looking. He could just be a very good reporter, there, Cam. To be fair, like he just could know. He's seen this before. He's the greatest of reporters, clearly. Um, and he he identified this woman just from her feet. So uh, okay, uh, hey, fair enough. I mean, he he could have stared at that feet quite a lot. <laughs> he also says at one point, "I know more than the police," <laughs> and I was like, "Wow." <laughs> Wow. So we've established we've established so far that Ward Prescott has a foot fetish. Mhm. Mhm. And a very inflated sense of self. Right. And now mm. Pam had a fiance. Seemed like more of a, fian- a fiance of convenience. This guy who worked in insurance that mm-hmm. she mails the ring back to, he kills himself and has, realizes that um, you know, that uh she's been running this conspiracy with his aid, with him un- unknowing about this. So mm-hmm. he commits suicide and leaves a note indicating this. And, um, you know, you have Prescott show up, sees the body, picks up the gun off the floor, <laughs> contaminates the crime scene, and then says, uh, suicide, open and shut case. <laughs> okay, good to know there, Prescott. Thanks for summing that one up. Don't even call the police. He's declared that this is open and shut case. Chief Inspector Prescott here. <laughs> yes, and then we follow with him leading the police and basically explaining to them the evidence of everything that's been going on. So, to summarize, Prescott, foot fetish, inflated sense of self, yes, masterful deductive skills, yes, and a clear leader. That's right. That's why I was saying like it's amazing to go back to this time where like a reporter or journalist was viewed as someone with like this level of power where it's like they are respected by everyone and even the police are following you know behind them like that's the sort of thing that's such a trope of movies of this time whereas nowadays like <laughs> reporters and journalists are not respected at all it's va- it's rather sad quite frankly <laughs> is it is this why you went to journalism school watching movies like this is it is, is it to be <laughs> yeah you wanted to be ward prescott you wanted to walk into the vancouver police department and be like guys Guys, Cam Smith is here. Cam the Provocateur has turned up to solve all your crimes. Well, part of journalism school was one of the assignments we actually had to go to like a police briefing outside the station and then write it up. Right. Now, when I went to do that assignment, I just barged right into the office and was like, take a seat, chief. I'm taking over. I'm going to explain <laughs> to all this. your all the officers about how this works today. <laughs> and you were obviously, you could identify all the women by their feet immediately too. That part, not so much. <laughs> Oh, that okay. that sounds. Uh, I'm not going to uh, reveal that one on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we already know you like to get pay ladies to dance for you, so uh, yeah. That, I'm that's... the dancer. Damn it, get it right. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. All right. Well, I lo- I love Ward Moore by this point now. I think he's my he's my hero at this point. He's um really full of confidence, this guy. But like as I was saying, like that's one of the beauties of this movie is it's trading in like tropes that people understand in this era. Mm-hmm. So it's like the reporter. Reporters were such a common protagonist in these types of movies because they would have inside information on everything. Mm-hmm. Them are like scientists when you get to sci-fi movies because they also have inside information. So they can explain to the audience everything that's going on. The spoiled socialite that is kind of like up to no good, very common in film noir. So, like, that works here. Like, the audience can get so plugged into the storytelling of this movie. Fifth Columnists, they would have understood what those are. You know, or just, like, enemy agents. They understand that. So, it doesn't require explaining. It can hit the ground running. And because the audience is familiar with all the tropes, they are there along for the ride without having to, like, stop dead as someone, you know, pulls out a whiteboard and explains what is going on. Well, that probably feeds in exactly as to why I think the pace is so is so good because the, I'm guessing the screenwriter knew what it could rely on and just went with that. You, you don't have to communicate these things; they're already built into audiences, like superheroes are now. Yeah, like this guy wrote Pulp Entertainment, and his Dick Tracy films that he wrote were also an hour long, and he could get an entire setup of the villain of the movie, what the crime is, Dick Tracy's investigation, and then usually a shootout at the end. Sounds amazing. Yeah. I should watch some of these. Well, see, annoyingly, this does sort of tag into a dislike I have, but I think we should save it for now. Okay. Um, I can jump in with a like I had. Sure. Which is, I am not a gun guy in general. Like, um, fetishizing guns in movies doesn't do a lot for me. But there's two types of guns that I always kind of like perk up for when I see in movies because they just speak so much to the movies of the era. Mm-hmm. One of them is Uzis in 1980s or 90s movies. Sure. Whenever I see a villain pull out those, you're like, oh, hell yeah, of course, the Uzi. Especially two at once. Of course, yes. It's also Tommy guns. Mm. So when I see like gangsters or police officers storming in with Tommy guns for a climax of a movie... I'm just excited to be there. I'm having fun. And in a pulpy B-movie like this, when I see the police storming in and taking down the fifth columnist in this movie with Tommy guns, I'm like, this is fun. And it's a well-staged shootout with suspense, with characters running in and out of rooms. This would not have been an expensive movie. And it still looks pretty good. And it's it's still pretty involving. And it has an exciting uh, finale. Yeah, a lot of it's just set in sets. Funnily enough, but it looks great. It's well enough shot. As you said earlier, it's not reaching the heights of Tonight We Raid Calais or something like that. That That is actually aiming for a, a higher level. But I, this is a perfectly serviceable plot. It looks about as good as it would. I bet this was made on a shoestring budget. And uh, I, I can't complain with that. Yeah. And even like there's a car chase at one point in the movie too that's actually really well done. Yep. Where... You know, it's not like um, ridiculously sped up the way that some movies are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a lot of really awkward back uh, rear projection. Mm-hmm. Um, it just shows like a car flip right off the road and you're like, that looks like a car flipping off the road. Like it looks quite real. Yeah. And it's quite tense. One thing I think this film does really well is just it ramps up the tension basically all the way through until the end. And that car chase, I was expecting it to look frankly awful. Like, I don't think I've seen many car chases from the 1930s or 40s. I know there's one in 39 Steps off the top of my head. But for the most part, or maybe that's the 50s version. Either way, I was just expecting it to look very dull. And like you said, a lot of rear projection. But it felt like 
there was money spent on this and they knew where their money had to be and it set pieces like this and set pieces like and this is one of my likes is the sequences the shootout at the boat at the end now obviously our our main man ward prescott has a fetish for as we mentioned feet and also climbing boats yes he loves he loves to scale a boat but i love to watch him do it he's very good and he takes on a whole boat full of nazis and you just think yeah get him ward i'm all for it and i i just love what this film is doing especially in the action sequences and it almost like turns into the finale of the Rocketeer, yeah. In a way, you know, that's where the Tommy guns come in and the police come storming in, and you're like, "This is really goofy stuff." Um, it's it's basically created to, you know, really like stir American passion for joining the war and stopping the Germans and the Japanese, but like it does it in a way that's pretty exciting. And there are propaganda films that are not exciting that are just like real creaky and not that interesting this one like it doesn't exactly to me like have a lot of points for like storytelling that's going to linger in my mind for the rest of my life but in terms of just making a really fast-paced action-filled you know 60 minutes it works yeah and you'll remember ward prescott climbing onto a boat his like deduction at crime scenes is what is going to stick with me because it's just like so arrogant and so like, well, I clearly know what's going on. <laughs> Despite having no police training, I know what I'm doing. You don't know his background. He could have been a, like a police officer for 20 years and he, did, yeah, he retired to become a reporter. 20 years. This man was probably like 22 years old when he shot this movie. Yeah, he probably was. He probably was. Everyone looked old, but yeah, I'll bet you he was actually pretty young. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's me for likes, Cam. Did you have anything else? I don't know if it's a like, Scott, but I can confirm that the actor Craig Stevens, who played Ward Prescott, was 23 or 24 when he shot this movie. That's crazy. He looked like mid-30s. <laughs> 30s? I was thinking like 60s. <laughs> oh, jeez. No, he's a little old. <laughs> poor guy. Everyone in that era looks so old to me. It's like, it's crazy. Clearly, your deductive skills are not quite up there with Ward Prescott. <laughs> well true actually uh the actress who played uh pam mitchell was actually older than him he was yeah. actually very young for that cast fair enough well that probably explains how he's able to uh, scale those boats because uh, it looks like it was him doing it totally you have a relatively cheap budget and you ask a 24 year old to climb a boat he can probably climb that boat and just just for reference folks he's not just like climbing onto a boat from the side he's scaling the anchor chain to get onto a boat like it's He's climbing up a rope at an angle. This is a hard job to do for anyone. And he has a sidekick who does it as well. And I was like mm. watching that going like, did they just make both of them shimmy up that like anchor chain? I guess so. Why, why couldn't one like drop the gang plan and just like him walk up that instead? Like, I don't understand why they both had to do it. But it looked great. It did. The co-star who was his sidekick was a few years older. I wonder if he was grumbling about it. <laughs> We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Attention, spy hards, die hards. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a hidden moon base. We're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. 
Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Saddle up, partners, because we're headed west with Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford for the genre mashup, Cowboys and Aliens. Will it be gold or fool's gold? Find out. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. Well, Cam, we haven't quite made port yet. I think we're coming into some stormy weather now on our uh, spy ship. So let's look at some dislikes. What do you have? Yeah, there's a big one that kind of looms over this movie. Um, mm-hmm. Almost like a giant head on the screen. Uh-huh. Uh, so this movie is dealing with Pearl Harbor. Sure. Which would have happened at the time of release of this movie, like maybe a year, several months before the film comes out. Like, very shortly after Pearl Harbor, this film is released. And the fact that it's showing Pearl Harbor footage is, um, it's it's a little jarring, because you just imagine, like, being in the theater at that point in time, like, you'd think that would be pretty unsettling to see so shortly after that attack. And it has, uh, there's an actor in the film, Key Luke, who plays Koshimo Haru, who is conspiring with the fifth columnist and it's a japanese character and we have his superimposed head over top of the pearl harbor attacks as he's like laughing basically at the audience this is laughing at the americans Mm -hmm. as a way to just fuel their anger and want to go to war basically and it is incredibly uncomfortable to be viewed in 2023 because it is a caricature and that's always very uncomfortable to see but just like it's a very, very crazy image. I was really like thinking about this all day at work today. Like, could you imagine if in the year 2002, they put out a movie that had like 9-11 footage with like a Middle Eastern man laughing at the audience superimposed on that? Mm-hmm. People would be beyond outraged. The studio would probably go out of business because people would be so unbelievably uh, hurt by this. It's really astonishing stuff. I mean, it speaks, I guess, to the era of what was just going on in media in the 1940s mm-hmm. with propaganda films. And I have seen World War II propaganda films, uh, not for this show necessarily, but outside of this show that are uh, just as uh, cringe-inducing. But this is a pretty um, jarring example, even if it is only for like, I don't know, 30 seconds. Yeah, it's not even... I'll escalate that slightly as well, because you say it's just laughing. There's more to it, too. I mean, this this character, this caricature, really, is saying stuff like, oh, sorry, oh, so sorry, uh, and other words, with a fake accent that's clearly sort of really, like, cranked up to 11 to really seem, like, hokey almost. You know, like, it's it's really going for that sort of over-the-top, Japanese character that you can picture in your mind, you can picture the voice. I think to do anything is for you. You can go watch the film if you want to see it. It is going for visceral reaction, mm-hmm. probably in 1942. In 2023, it just ends up being uh, entirely insensitive. And this is not Cam and I, you know, getting upset about anything that we see that's slightly outside of our comfort zone. Far be it. It's more of a case of this clearly was aimed at trying to get a reaction out of audiences that were going to the cinema at the exact, exact year this came out because of how close it was to Pearl Harbor. And, you know, you may forget your history, but 
Pearl Harbor was a very, very important moment in American history. It changed the tide of World War II. It cost countless, countless lives. And I will connect it to something I mentioned earlier. And this is not a joke connection, but that is the connection to Big Jim McLean because they go to the site of that in the film. Right. And they talk a little bit about Pearl Harbor. So, yes, it's the number one dislike with a bullet for me, too, because it's, I mean, for a film that just flies by, there's so much right. Those 30 seconds really sour me on the overall product of the film. I understand why it was put in there. I understand maybe what they were going for if they were selling war bonds or trying to get people on side with the concept of joining World War Two. for what, for many people, is a, a war that's happening across the other side of the globe. But this is not done with any foresight that the film will ever be revisited by anyone else, which maybe isn't the fault of the director. Maybe they just think the art should be for when it's released. I understand that. But yeah, it's just bad. Well, like there's an artistic way to convey that Pearl Harbor has happened and that that's why there's the shift in where the story is going. But the way they tack out here is done purely just to inspire hatred. Yeah. And that would have been, I'm sure, like a strong motivation for the filmmakers to do to, you know, fire up an audience to support the war mm -hmm. effort. But yeah, it's the sort of thing that viewed now, it's, uh, there's no other word just than like skin crawling. Yeah. It's, I, I, I wouldn't say like, you know, if you're sensitive, maybe skip over that scene. I think it's important that you watch it to get a grip of what's going on in the whole film. But if it were to be excised from the film, I also don't think it adds anything. Yeah. And I'll note actually that Key Luke, the actor who played that role, that, uh, you know, he's in the rest of the film as well. But like, uh, he was probably best known as being the shopkeeper in Gremlins. People may know him from. He was a veteran oh. character actor, popped up all over the place. But yeah, I would imagine that he wouldn't have held this up uh, later in life as one of his favorite roles. No, but I imagine around this time there were a lot of roles that were similar. I would guess so, yeah. And if you were a working actor at that time... I would imagine you would be pigeonholed a lot in terms of what your job opportunities are. Well, Cam, I'm going to jump in with a dislike that's actually connected to what we were just talking about because it's to do with context. But I'm going to start with a question. Do you know the date that the attack on Pearl Harbor happened? Yeah, it was December 7th, 1941. And that's the sort of thing that like, I wouldn't have known, I think, coming out of high school... But the Michael Bay film actually really pounded into my head. Okay, sure. Now, I don't know that. I don't, I've seen the Michael Bay film, but I don't recall that enough to know the date. Uh, but the film makes a big deal of telling you that like the beginning of the film is on the, the fourth of the month, and it's like leading up to it. So it's giving you a nod of what's coming, and it does kind of drop a few hints leading up to it about what Japan is doing. Um, and that's fine. If you know your history. And this is where the dislike comes in. Because I don't know those dates. So for me the Pearl Harbor attack. It comes out of nowhere. But also there's other things throughout. I mean there's talk of a, a, a group called the AAA. Which is the America Above All group. Which is not a real group of people. There is I think Cam mentioned the real name earlier on. Of what it was based upon. Yeah. But there were these like leagues of people that were sort of anti-war, etc. But they're given no exposition to explain what they are, or what ideologically where they are, or, or who leads them, or anything really. There's a lot of stuff in this film that's just put in and assumes you know what they do and what their function is. 
viewing it now, it's kind of tough. And I found myself having to stop and Google quite a few times during this film, which can somewhat interrupt your viewing. But it it's just a shame. I mean, I get it. It's a 60-minute B-movie filler before the big picture that happens afterwards. They haven't got time to explain it. And I was actually praising it for doing that earlier. But there are, like, some shorthand you can use to sort of, even just a line to explain things can be useful. And I've had this problem before with a lot of films around this era who they had to do, I think, like, Lance the Spy was one of them. I often reference that film. Yeah. Where it, it gives you exposition in, like, cards in between scenes just to try and give you something. But even that's not enough. Or like British Asian, that's all about like the, the the Russian Revolution or something like that, and <laughs> the most difficult to understand movie that I've ever watched. <laughs> it's crazy, and we had no idea what was going on the entire film, and I had I had problems similar to that. This one to me wasn't an issue. I guess like I've internalized a lot of that time period just from film watching and just my own interest in World War II history. But um, this is a movie. And I guess you could say every movie is made for the audience of its time. Sure. But this movie is almost exclusively made for the audience of its time. Yeah. I think you like watch it now as someone who has an interest in sort of the history of spy movies. But yeah. like no one who is a general audience member, I could really see having any reason to watch this movie. Like it wouldn't make sense just to be like, oh, it's Friday night. What's on TV? Oh, you know what? I'm going to watch Spy Ship. I just don't see that being the case. This feels like something that like you're not watching it unless you're kind of going in with something for you. It's an espionage interest for some mm. other people. It's an interest in world war two propaganda films. Honey, the kids are bored. We should put a film on. Yeah, you're right. Mm, what should we watch? Oh, spy ship. Yeah. No one's ever said that. <laughs> never, never. And you know what? Even probably in 1942, when this was in theaters, yeah. not a lot of people were probably showing up thinking I get to see spy ship. They were thinking about what the a picture was. Yeah. They, they weren't walking out going prayer. Scott, Press, Scott, press, Scott. They were talking about the, the big picture afterwards. This is the warm-up act, basically. Uh, but yeah, so that was sort of my main dislike after yours, which was, of course, the big one. Uh, I, a couple of little silly ones. I mentioned the sort of antagonist-protagonist inversion. I thought that was a very weird choice. I'm sure it's more to do with how these sort of gangster serials were structured back then. But it, it's odd to spend that much time focusing on your villain to then have them off off screen which i know you wanted to talk about sure which like undercuts yeah like the uh the setup of that character i mean to me it was a surprise that worked for me yeah but it's also the most compelling character gone from the movie so i'm actually like i think this movie does an a okay job sidestepping that by just delivering an action scene that's actually pretty well done Mm -hmm. Because you're involved in the kind of sensationalistic stuff that you're not stopping to think about the most interesting character in the movie being long gone. So to me, I was kind of like mixed on it. It didn't really bother me, but uh, I would have liked to have seen a little more from the Pam character. It does all this stuff to set up Pam's relationship with her father, played by George Irving. And, you know, there's like an antagonism between the two like he thinks she should be working on the side of you know pro-war and she isn't and he doesn't necessarily know who she's working for but eventually finds out but you never really get resolution to that they spend a lot of time trying to set that up and then nothing really happens to that and it's just a shame she i i it's a shame that she's killed in a throwaway line mm -hmm. like it's not even like she's given a death on on screen death it's literally oh 
you see her feet, which is uh, quickly deduced by Prescott, of course, because he is the world's best journalist. And then you hear a line from her, her past lover that uh, he strangled her too hard. And William Forrest, who plays her um, collaborator slash former love interest, Martin Oster, he's not exactly like a charisma bomb. So you're not like kind of trading up your villains. Uh, he's fine, but he's very templatey. He's no Ward Prescott. He, who is really, though? I mean, we all aim to be a little more Prescott. Why do you think I'm named Scott? <laughs> that would be amazing if, uh, you know, your mom was watching, like, Spy Ship and was like, wait, that, that's the name. That, that, that's it. I've oh, got it. Cross out the P-R-E. There it is. Who needs Ward? It's Scott. He can't, he can't be he can't be fully Prescott, but he can be a little bit of Prescott. <laughs> no one could be fully Prescott. And she was going to change her last name to Wardy, but uh, you know. Uh, of course, of course, of course, of course. Uh, that is the greatest fan theory of my name I've ever heard, and I want it to stick forever. I think that works. Any more dislikes from you, Cam? Yeah, I actually have a character dislike, and that is the character oh. of Sue Mitchell, played by Maris Rickson. Let me tell you, people had different names back then. Maris Rickson, when's the last time you ran into one of those in the uh, outside world? But the character of Sue Mitchell, I think is actually set up as an, in an interesting way. In that like her and the Pam character are actually very close. Mm. And I was like making notes like, is Sue going to be kind of the Achilles heel of Pam? Like for all that she's doing bad things, the relationship with Sue is going to be kind of the sympathetic element to that character. And it's really dropped, and they just turn Sue into a damsel in distress. And there's a point in the movie where they have her tied up on the boat, because you gotta have a female character tied up on a boat at the end when you've got fifth mm -hmm. columnists at play. And she got out of those ropes. And I was like, oh my god, she got out of the ropes. This is a more proactive character. And she gets a gun. Oh my god. Like, this character is actually gonna have an impact. And then the gun is quickly taken away from her and she's just like shoved to the ground. And then you have to have Prescott storm in and save the day. Do you know what that reminds me of a little bit? And that's the, um, I wrote this down in my notes. It reminds me of the ending of The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original version. Yeah. Where the dad is tied up in the house and then gets out, gets a gun, and then just immediately runs to the roof and hides. <laughs> You're right, right. That's the movie, though, where the mom is like, I'm a sharpshooter. I'll take this fool out. Yeah. I'll, I'll kill them all. Sure. She just snipes them all while Alfred Hitchcock stands in the crowd behind them. Great film. Check it out, folks, if you haven't. She puts, like, camouflage paint across her face like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator. She's like, I could use this uh, chain gun, but I'll use a sniper rifle instead. Aye! <laughs> exactly what she sounded like in the film. I've never seen a better impersonation of that woman. Thank you, thank you. But like, yeah, the the Sue Mitchell character, it's. I was saying earlier that this movie like trades and tropes the audience would just easily be able to just pick up on. Mm -hmm. But that was a, a trope that I'm just like, you didn't even need it really. Like, just the fact that they were going to, I don't know, make off with important information is enough. I didn't need this character tied up on the boat because it's not like there's a big payoff to her rescue. I guess other than the final moment where they're in the back of a car and like going to kiss, and they tell the driver to keep his eyes on the road. I guess a very uh, no way out uh, kind of moment. Yeah, yeah. There was no, um, like, sun shield going down there just to cover it up. Yeah. Uh, no, none of that. I did realize I did have one final dislike I forgot to mention, and it's a small one. 
But it's something that's still happening today in films like Oppenheimer. Okay. And that is constant music playing over everything. <laughs> right. This film has... Uh, well, this film is 60 minutes. I think the score runs for about 50 minutes because it, there's always music playing dramatic scenes, chase scenes. It never stops. I think it's like two scenes I noted on my second watch that didn't have a like a soundtrack behind it. Mm. It's not a, necessarily always a bad thing, but when you're having like character conversations and there's like silly music playing in the background, you just think, this is a bit weird. I'm guessing it's meant to make you feel like things are moving faster if there's a, a fast bit of music going behind it. But I, I just felt that was a weird choice. It's very much of that era. Um, it didn't bother me too much. It didn't pull me out of the film. But um, it's also not like a lot of these movies, the music they're playing was, in this case, probably just something they had in their catalog. This mm. is probably not something they brought in a composer for. And uh, it's just kind of like wallpaper to me. It's funny because you often will point out like the score to this movie felt like wallpaper. I didn't really notice it. This is a case where it felt like that to me, whereas I tend to notice some of the other ones. There were just like scenes you wouldn't expect the score to be and it was playing. That was all really. But let's go to final notes. I've got a couple. Uh, let's start with you, though. Um, I liked the button the guy was wearing that said, a slip of the lip may sink a ship. I thought that was a potential Spy Hard's merchandise in the future. Sure, let's let's get it printed right now. I can see all of the one sale. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, also, isn't it like... Isn't that like a very long version of the same saying, which is like, uh, what's it like? Loose lips sink ships. Yeah. Yeah. Loose lips sink ships. Why does it need to be three lines long? Just go with the concise version. It's much better. Also more punchy on the button. And you'd need less button space. You'd save money on buttons. You'd think that Ward Prescott, being apparently the greatest reporter of all time, would have looked at that button and been like, I'll fix that. That's it's probably a Prescott original. He probably came up with a better version of that saying. And since then, we've been doing it Prescott style. I like to think that. I like to think that. I'd like to do everything Prescott style. <laughs> oh, my. Oh. Speaking of uh, Prescott. Where are those taxi ladies at? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Prescott, there's a moment where he's in his office. I think uh -huh. uh, Sue's there with him. And a gunman like jumps in and fires at him. This gunman had the worst shot of any human being I've ever seen. Like, this is Stormtrooper level. <laughs> and yet he also has the uh, evasive abilities of a ninja. He goes up a flight of stairs to the roof, and the other guy seems to lose him on the roof. Yeah, it's true. I, was he, I, I, I can't imagine he was like hiding behind a chimney or something. So either he's Batman, or that guy who was looking for him has terrible vision. He's actually incidentally blind, but he didn't tell the other guy. I couldn't see him anywhere. Yeah, you can't see anything. Maybe the gunman could do parkour really well. Ah, okay. So there's like another version of this film where it turns into the uh, the chase in Casino Royale. That's what I'm thinking. That's what you're hoping. Because you know damn well that Prescott can do parkour. Prescott is running through the brick wall and chasing him <laughs> down. He is coming for you. You just don't know it yet. Prescott <laughs> is always chasing you. That's right. Leading the police behind him. <laughs> That's the guy. He did it. Another note I had was the father character. Um, he's kind of amazing in that he just hangs around the house like smoking in a tuxedo all the time. Mm. Incredible. Life goals. <laughs> yeah, you want to be Prescott and living that guy's life. He has like a, a really cutting line though when he's talking to Pamela. 
and he says, you have your mother's unstable, violent qualities. I was like, oh my goodness. Well, on one hand, this is clearly a very sexist character. But number two, I'm like, what was going on in this family? I'd like to know the origin story of how Pam was sent on the path she was sent. I don't really understand this family too much either, because Pam and Sue are half-sisters, apparently. So, is the dad Pam's dad or Sue's dad? I would guess both. So they have different mums? That's what I'm thinking, yeah. Because I don't think Sue is from the same mom. That's my guess. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm sure... I'm, well, I know who would know. <laughs> Prescott? We, yeah, we all know Prescott knows the answer <laughs> to this question. We shouldn't even need to answer it. He could do a DNA test just from looking at them. Look at their feet. Yeah, their feet. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, I had a couple of just a, a couple of little things to add in. I did get uh, slight Moonraker vibes at one point. Okay. When Prescott, of all people, turns up with the police into the office has been basically empty. And they tell him, go, well, there's nothing here. Right. And you get that sort of like, oh, this is a waste of time, Bond. Oh, what an idiot. But then, of course, Prescott figures out there's a purse down here and everything gets saved. It's true. Yeah. He finds all the clues. He does. Also, doesn't he, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the end when you have basically all the villains are either caught or killed, except for Oster, who makes a getaway by jumping off the boat, doesn't like Prescott like run up and just like unload a gun into the water on him? After punching the Japanese guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. this guy in the water who's basically floundering was probably pretty uh, vulnerable to the police just literally, like, hauling him out and arresting him. But Prescott was like, not on my watch. <laughs> One hand as well. He didn't even, like, use both hands. He just shot it, hit his mark yeah. immediately. What a guy. Yeah. What wow. a guy. I'm in awe. And the last question I had is, the this AAA, right, they filled out a stadium full of people for mm-hmm. their talk. Could we fill out a stadium? Not a chance in hell, no. No, but you know who could? Prescott? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think out of all of this, we would come out of this review being in awe of a man. But we are. I mean, I was laughing my head off during his crime scene investigation moments. I was just like, this is so silly, but I'm loving it. Are we now officially ward hearts? Uh, press hards? I'd be happy with Scott hards, but that's just more about me, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think that works. Um, that course, definitely doesn't work. There will never be a <laughs> so... Scott hard, ever. Um, but a press hard? I think that might work. Okay. The boat is pulling into the port. It is time to fill out our papers. Knock list. Is Spyship making the list of the need-to-see spy films of all time? Cam, you're up. No, no, no. Uh, When we talked about Tonight We Raid Calais, that was one where I was a little more conflicted because the artistry of that film was so strong. It had a genuine, like, emotional gut punch to it. Yeah. Um, That was, that's one I would recommend to kind of, like, anyone who is interested in vintage World War II movies. I'd be like, you mm-hmm. know what? Check out that one. It's worth, it's worth seeing. This one, it's a pretty specific audience. I think spy movie diehards would find it interesting to watch. No one else. Well, maybe World War II buffs. But outside of that, no one else. Like, it's it's just kind of like a pulpy, hour-long adventure that's a total diversion to watch, but I can't imagine, like, putting this on a list of the all-time great spy films. 
all right, that's one no, and I don't think I need to really drag out mine either. It's a no too. I mean, Cam said there are some like people that this might appeal to, and there are certainly some people that are doing the completionist run of Spy Hearts and watching all the films as we go along. Sure, thank you for joining us on this journey, and uh, we hope you got something out of watching that film too, even if it is just love for Ward Prescott. But is this a need-to-see official classic? Hell no. There's, I mean... I'll, just the uh, Pearl Harbor scene alone would knock it back a few paces. Yeah. But there's a lot missing here to character development. You know, I think it would need another 30 minutes to be a more successful film and probably get itself on the knock list. Just to be able to spend time with characters and also to pay off the villain. Mm-hmm. Because she's just tossed to one side in favor of a man, which is a very unfortunate choice. Yeah. No, that's very true. And, like, the thing with a lot of these kind of pulpy B-movies is, there are masterpieces out there, but they're few and far between given the sheer volume of these movies. Like, there's so, so many of them. And to me, like, Tonight We Raid Calais kind of rises above. It's it's better than most. So far. Um, whereas this one, yeah, so far. Whereas, like, this one falls to me more in kind of the, the typical category. Yeah, it, it it doesn't underperform, but it doesn't overperform. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go, folks. Two no's. And as such, Spy Ship is not quite making the destination. It is not making the knock list. But the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Cam, I'm shooting the question over to you, sir. What are we looking at next week? We are leaving the 40s well behind. And we are journeying up to the modern day. We are going to look at 2023's Ghosted. Starring Anna de Armas and Chris Evans. Yes, folks, this is most likely the most up-to-date and recent film we've ever given a full review to. But we didn't do a declassified for this one, so we thought it's a prime target to finally take a look at. And we loved Anna de Armas in No Time to Die. And I don't think we've had Chris Evans on the film just yet. Uh, well, you reviewed The Grey Man on the show. I don't think I've looked at a Chris Evans movie, though, on the show. You're quite right, actually. And Chris Evans was great in The Grey Man. And I've yet to watch Ghosted, so I am going into it with arms wide open, as Creed once said. So your mission, (laughs) should you choose to accept it, is to check out Ghosted and join us next week on the show. And if you want to support Spy Hards, tell your friends about us or leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. And don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at Spy Hards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R. DS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next time, listeners, you'll find Cam and I climbing up a boat with Ward Prescott.